Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. We talked in the open of the first hour about the need to pray for revival uh, if we want things to change and to be changed by God in the land in which we live. Revival, we noted, um, has never been sent by God without a concerted plea from God's people, acknowledging the depth of their own sin and their own nation's desperate need for God, whatever that nation may be. So if you didn't didn't hear that, I encourage you to go grab the podcast for the first hour uh, at MyFaithRadio.com. My colleague, Bill Arnold, is having an extended conversation with my next guest, Peter Kapsner, uh, about prayer. They are each, uh, each Wednesday evening right now on Bill's uh, Drive Time program talking about prayer. And uh, so I'm bringing Peter on early today to talk about that series and what he and Bill are learning about the practice and the power of prayer in the lives of believers. Um, Peter Kapsner, welcome again to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Great to be here, as always. Did you sleep at the studio? Because you were on with Bill uh, last night, and you're on with me this morning. So I, I did. I, I actually did a 24-hour <laughs> prayer vigil for the two of you this morning, you and Paul. I so. wish that. I, see, I wish that were true. <laughs> I wish that were true. Okay. So we'd, let's, uh, let's, let's talk seriously about prayer for yeah. a moment. You guys have been—you uh, have begun tilling this soil— um, there's literally no end in sight to the conversation that you guys are going to have about prayer. Uh, what have you, what are some observations that, that you could make? Um, what have you learned about the practice and the power of persistent prayer um, in those conversations to this point? Yeah, it's really been an engaging series, uh, not just for, I, I would hope for the listeners, of course, but I would say just even personally. And I think there's a number of takeaways thus far. I think we're roughly week seven-ish into the series, and we've had guests from around the country and, and people that you would respect as spiritual leaders, spiritual shepherds. There, there'd be people outside looking in, Carmen, that you would think, boy, their prayer life must be rich and, and it must be something that they engage with uh, all throughout the day. And yet the common message and the common theme has been that prayer really is a struggle. And, and one of our guests said it really well. He said, there's so many things that you can do within your sort of Christian practice that has a benefit whether or not God is actually real. To, to gather together with other people of like-minded faith uh, really has a benefit. There's, there's sort of this anchoring thing to be in fellowship with others, uh, to be a part of a, a really good worship service. And the music can be fantastic, thought-provoking sermon, you name it. There's a, there's a lot of benefit, even if this was just one big game of pretend, which, of course, I don't believe it's a game of pretend in the least. But prayer, to go into the presence of God, if God doesn't actually exist, then is among one of maybe the dumbest things that we could do. It would just be this false hope. It would be, at best, maybe some sort of psychological easing, uh, but we'd be living in a delusion. And so in, in talking about that, I think people really struggle with prayer in a lot of ways saying, does this really matter? Is God really hearing my prayer? Does God really exist? And uh, if God is already going to do what God is going to do, why would I pray anyway? Like these are the sorts of questions, Carmen, that I think we we sort of live subterraneanly in our Christian practice at times. And many of the guests have said, 
no, I struggle with prayer too. But last part about that, they will often then say, but once you begin to engage in the practice regularly and you sort of break that ice and, and you maybe set up time during the day just simply to do it. Our guest yesterday was Raleigh Washington, and he said it was transforming when him and his wife Paulette over the past couple of months just said, all right. Uh, three times a day, the two of us are going to gather together in prayer. This is a man who's 82 years old, has done ministry all over the country and world. And at 82 years old, he's talking about how this has transformed his life and the life of his wife. It's been a fabulous series. One of the things that um, I'll just make one more observation about your conversation with Raleigh last night that really stood out to me. Um, it's interesting to me that he's been married to her for so long and and yet is just now discovering um, how powerful her prayer life is and her, I mean, he know he's known her as a, as a woman of faith for a long time. I'm not sure that until he began this, uh, this concerted practice with her of praying, um, together that he discovered, wow, this, this, this power, yeah. this, this spiritual power and access that, um, that she experiences um, because of her very consistent and ardent prayer. All right. Um, so let me just encourage listeners to check out Bill and uh, and Peter's ongoing conversation about prayer. Um, I'm sure that Bill Bill's show has a fancy name like Afternoons with Bill Arnold. <laughs> is that does. what it's called? It does. Yeah. It's as creative as it gets. Because Mornings with yes. Carmen. So I know, right? I'm just saying like right where it's not very creative. <laughs> so um, check out Afternoons with Bill Arnold Wednesday, um, every Wednesday for the last seven weeks and ongoing into the future. He and Peter Kapsner talking about prayer, tilling the soil of prayer. If um, if this is an area of your life where you need more equipping because you recognize that there's power, uh, that the one sitting on the throne and in the throne room has the power um, to change reality here and now, but you don't know how to get in there and um, and enter into that war room, um, we should encourage you to, to check out that series. All right, Peter and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. I'm going to I'm going to tell him I love him and see how he responds oh to dear. that. All right, that's up next. <laughs> Peter Kapsner, I love you. Well, does that, feel, does that feel like weird to hear on air? You know, it ever? does. It, 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 it know. does. And yet when you step back, uh, right, at this point, Carmen, and, and what, what else defines God's kingdom but love? I mean, it, it is all throughout the biblical text, all the way to the point that in First John, uh, it does say that, beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But if you don't know how to love, then you probably shouldn't tell me that you know God because God is love. And so if that's the case, why is that awkward if we say that to one another as, you know, believers and, and friends? Why is that weird? I'd be curious your thoughts on that, too. <laughs> well, I um, I am asking you this question for two reasons. Um, one, I have from time to time a guest who at the end of the show, like before, <laughs> before they leave, <laughs> they'll say, well, you know, I love you. And I say it back because in, in every case that it happens, like with Kathy Branzell, yeah. you know, this is a person I, I, I genuinely love with whom I have genuinely, you know, knelt down in, in a concert of prayer and sought God's will in our own lives and for the kingdom and with whom I have grieved over loss, um, with whom I have 
um, you know, uh, struggled and um, and wrestled in prayer for concerns, um, you know, for friends that we that we have. So I love her. I love her. But to say that makes some people uncomfortable, particularly like my Minnesota nice listening audience um, <laughs> who find it weird that um, that people might so freely say to one another that we that we love each other. I mean, you know, uh, in the Bible, it was a it was a kiss. Like, right. right? They greeted right. one another with a kiss. I got to tell you, um, I you know, I have spent now enough time in Minnesota to know that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. If the girl from the South showed up and just started laying on laying kisses on people like, you know. Social distancing and all makes that really hard. Right, but uh, right. I'm I am bringing this up today because there is a Wendy's manager who is uh, not only telling people that she loves them, she is she has provoked a change in um, in people, and they're now saying it back. Like it is possible. This is you know at a Wendy's like hamburger joint, she is telling people that she loves them, and they are saying it back. That it's is gotta, that has got to that's a, that's world changing. It, it is world changing. It is world changing, Carmen. And you're not wrong. I don't understand. Literally, I was on the phone with a friend of mine yesterday. He's a pastor, former pastor I used to work with, Dave Johnson. And we were chatting for a bit. And at the end of the conversation, he just went, love you, man. And and I was like, you know, I didn't even, I'm so unpracticed about how to say these things back. And and I think it is, and I do love him. And I finally just spluttered out. I love you, man, too. But could we get into some sort of situation where it becomes a, a more natural language between us as believers? I, I think, though, Carmen, isn't love risky? I mean, at the end of the day, is it not risky to say to another person that I am for you, that that I I care about your well-being and I care about your wholeness? Because I think many of us and our listeners as well have put ourselves out there like that, saying that we love another person. And I don't mean romantically. I just mean we have a genuine, tender-hearted affection. We care about the well-being of another person. And when that isn't reciprocated, when, when maybe a relationship fractures, maybe when a church divides, maybe when a parent leaves, maybe when a kid um, sort of walks out of the home, that, that hurts a lot. To, to love another person is to make yourself incredibly intimately vulnerable on a number of levels. And I think that's part of why maybe it's sort of, I do love you, but I don't know that I want to say it because holy cow, that's going to that's going to really open myself up for the potential for pain. And so I, it's fascinating that it would happen in a Wendy's of all places. That, and, so and, me, and then it has know. a chance so to change the environment. Yeah, I got to give April uh, Dadana, April Dadana, a shout out. And I got to tell you, if you're listening right now, um, or you know anybody um, who might live in the Oak Harbor, Washington area, I want people to drive to the Wendy's in Oak Harbor, Washington, and tell April Dodonna that we love her too. Yeah, I'm so close to driving over happened. there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right, right? So, I mean, if you're, you're summer vacation opportunity here, Oak Harbor, Washington, the Wendy's is a place where you can get some love. So she started this, um, she, uh, uh, you know, somebody ordered in the drive-thru, and in, in, in she said, I love you, at the, like, right? Now, I can, it's a little bit like, you know, the way you hang up with your family and you're like, I love you. And then you're on a business call and you realize you just said the same thing and you're like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, who hasn't Maybe done that, Maybe should have thought right? that through a little so, more. Yes, exactly. So three months later, and she has told thousands of people, I love you. Um, and she said, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any idea um, how much difference those little words might make. 2,700 people have now reciprocated. Um, and, uh, and sent her these, I love you messages back and they're doing it on social media and they're doing it, you know, in, in lot, you know, in live and in person in, uh, in the store. Um, I love you. You are loved. You matter. Um, I love you. 
That's what she says. That's what she says she says. And uh, and just I just want to lift that up. Um, if you think there's not a way for you to influence a culture of hate and a culture of death with words of life, just start telling people, random people, yeah. um, that they're loved and that in Christ Jesus, you love them. All right. Hey, we got to take a break. I'm, I, I'm, I'm stomping all over our breaks today. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of anarchy on the show. When we come back, we're going to talk about Joe Biden and the Bible he is going to be sworn in on and what it means to have uh, a family Bible. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Peter Kapsner off air during those uh, 90 seconds, Peter and Paul have attested to the fact that Wendy's has been speaking their love language for a very long time. It has. Through oh, sea yeah. salt fries and Frosties. And, and oh, yes. why is that, that those two things work so well together? Because Sweet and salty, man. Sweet you literally salty. don't even have to train your kids in this. They get them both together and they're like, well, of course I'm going to dip the fries into the Frosty. Why would I not? I mean, it's, it's sugar, one of the most self-evident things. and fat. And I know we're not it's, supposed it's to glory. be advocating it's, it's, <laughs> Okay. It's totally glorious. Okay. So um, I'm pretty sure it's that's what we're going to have in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> okay, so um, I want to talk with you about uh, a, a piece that I read in Business Insider, of all places, because, you know, I'm a I'm a news scroller. You um, are Biden indeed. plans to be sworn in as president with a massive family heirloom Bible uh, dating back to hold on, because Business Insider is trying to sell me something back to 1893. 127 right, so years old. Yes. Nice, nice. So let's talk about um, family heirloom Bible because that's that's a that's a mouthful and it means something. It, it does mean something. I think that uh, when you think about what might have been going on in the world in 1893, and I don't know my history mm-hmm. well enough to know that for sure, but we're not that far actually removed from the Civil War. I mean, you think about how long ago this was. And people, somebody within Biden's family lineage, generations ago, great-great-grandfather, however many generations that would be back uh, for Joe Biden, they were reading this family Bible. And and I think there's something about uh, the, the physical representation of something that matters just first of all, right? I mean, you can, you can have a non-spiritually oriented family heirloom of some kind that is meaningful. And, and I know many of my students, for example, will come to class and, and somebody meaningful in their life will have passed away maybe from generations ago and it keeps getting passed down. It might be a family ring. It might be a family earring. It might be um, even just something as as uh, mundane as a pen or something was used by their great-great-grandfather, whatever it might be, just that has meaning that you're connected to something bigger. Now, added to the fact uh, of, of the God-inspired, authoritative uh, word of God that got passed down from 1893, and now here he will be in just a few days putting his hand on it, swearing on it as a result of the inauguration that uh, is happening here next week. And so with that being true, I, I just think it opens up the conversation, right, about what it is that we are doing in the present that might very much outlast us all for the generations that are to come. I, I think about a Sarah Grove song. She's one of my favorite Christian musical artists, and she has this beautiful song called Generations. And in, in sort of the bridge of the song, she ends up t- uh, talking along the lines of, to my great, 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 great granddaughter, live in peace. She's offering this blessing that this beautiful story of God's kingdom is going to continue forever and ever and ever. Now, you and I are not here talking about the merits of Joe Biden's spirituality uh, or lack thereof or whatever it might be. I mean, th- th- we're not going to uh, try to discern all of that this morning. But what we can safely say is that what we do in the present matters far beyond our lives in ways that are both seen and unseen. 
So I, uh, I want to make a couple of comments about having a family Bible because we have one in our family. Yeah. And one of the things that's precious about it is literally all the people who laid hands on it. And I know that when he lays his hand on it to be sworn in, that's different than the way that I am thinking about the people across the generations of, um, of my family who have laid hands on our family Bible, um, turned its pages, allowed its word to penetrate um, into them. It's not enough to have a family Bible. Uh, we have to have a living faith. Yeah. And the Bible has to uh, have its rightful place in our lives, and it has to be the authority under which we live. And that is a good conversation for us as Christians to be prepared to have when we witness the next president of the United States being sworn in on a Bible. Is it more than symbolism? Uh, this is a person making a vow, making a promise before God to serve one nation under God. What does that mean? How does that make us unique as a people? Um, where else in the world would that be happening? The answer is nowhere. Right. And so um, it, it is an opportunity for us as Christians next week to highlight something that's going to take place um, in, during the inauguration that is distinctly ours. It's distinctly ours. Um, and so I just want to encourage people to take note of that, um, to be prepared to have conversations uh, about uh, about the Bible, about the legacy of the Bible in your own family, about your own family Bible. If you've never had one to this point, this is be a great tradition that could begin with you. Um, your living faith and your relationship with the Bible could produce generations from now, uh, you know, a person who serves this nation as president and is yeah. sworn in on your family Bible. How cool would that be 127 years from now? Um, and is it more than symbolism when we lay our hand on the Bible for any reason? Yeah. See, um, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, I think absolutely, Carmen. And, and, and it is more than symbolism. You are making a statement there. Your physical action in physical space is, uh, is connected to um, people observing you and seeing you. It goes back to our love conversation where words have power, actions have power. They bring meaning, they bring substance, they bring something into the world when we do them. And, and to your point about the family Bible, I have a dear friend of mine here that I work uh, with uh, across the street at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, Justin Jepson, and, and he is on air sometimes with Bill and I in the afternoons, and he talks about how his grandmother, who passed away recently, uh, gave him her uh, family Bible. And, mm -hmm. and what was so sweet about it, too, is that this Bible was covered in notes from page to page to page to page, from, from the front page to the back page. It had her notes of her journey expressed in words in this this text and for Justin it is she is uh, his spiritual mentor where uh, that that passage in Hebrews where it says that Abel though dead still speaks right and uh, and and the witness of his grandmother is still speaking in the living language of the living word combined with her living words and it has been an incredible uh, power in his life he talks about this on air and off air and it's very compelling that the the journey that we engage with and and, and God's written word to pass that on generationally. I don't know what's going to happen next week when he puts his hands on this family Bible, but well, here's what I do know. It matters. It absolutely matters. There's more than just a symbol happening here. Um, okay, we have, a, um, we have a listener who has said, um, this is so cool. Uh, my grandfather was born in 1897. I recently received my great-grandfather's Bible. It's oh. in German. Oh. This, uh, this, by the way, from a listener who also in, um, in prior weeks and months has recommended that I go to the Finnish Bistro on Como Avenue and get salmon left say for lunch or dinner. You're Just kidding. Saying, I am you only about there, there six miles away from that, Carmen. I could actually <laughs> post on my Instagram account later today, me eating just that thing. 
Oh, there you go. Because that would be real listener engagement. It really would be. That. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Peter Kapsner, we got to leave it right there. Thanks, as always, so much, man. We um, we love you. Yeah, genuinely, I love you guys, too. Genuinely, in genuinely all appropriate do. ways. Absolutely. It's very true. I love you guys, too. All right. We'll be right back. going to invite us uh, here to think for a moment about our bodies. Yes, our physical body. And the relationship between our physical body uh, as a vessel, both strong and fragile, both uh, resilient and prone to decay. I want you to think for a moment about your body and what you're feeling in your physical body right now. And if a part of the answer to that question is, I am feeling some persistent or chronic physical pain, or I am experiencing some uh, illness of some kind, then this next conversation uh, is one you don't want to miss. The book is Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness. We'll be right back. Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, take away this cup of suffering. Luke chapter 22 and verse 42. This is Max Lucado. Jesus could have confided in his disciples. He could have assembled a prayer meeting. But when he faced fear, he went first to his Father. Oh, how we tend to go everywhere else. First to the bar, to the counselor, to the self-help book, or to the friend next door. Not Jesus. The first one to hear his fear was his Father in heaven. A millennium earlier, David was urging the fear-filled to do the same. I will fear no evil. How could David make such a claim? Because he knew where to look. Rather than turn to the other sheep, David turned to the shepherd. Rather than stare at the problems, he stared at the rod and staff. Because he knew where to look, David was able to say, I will fear no evil. This is Max Lucado. Luann Huska joins me now, among other things. She is the author of a brand new book, Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness. But I want to tell you uh, a little bit about Luann because the things that she has studied and the way that she brings an anthropologist lens to her writing is important here. If you have ever asked yourself, how do people make meaning of the world and what kind of cultural tools those stories um, those those narratives, those metaphors, those core values do we use to actually interpret our lives? That's at um, that's at the center of of Luann's not only study, but also uh, her worldview and how she brings it to bear uh, on the writing that she does. So Luann Huska, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a delight to have you. This um this conversation about the physical body um, is is particularly timely. It's very, um, it's critically important. And just so that you know, what we know about our listeners is that the majority of people listening right now suffer with some kind of chronic pain. So I just want you mm. to um, talk with them about what you know um, about God and his goodness and this topic. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to speak to your listeners. It is an issue that um I think goes unnoticed. It's often an invisible 
sort of a thing that um, we might feel ashamed about because um, often we've seen or gotten the message that the Christian life is about overcoming our pain and that the healing we receive from Jesus means that we won't have pain anymore or we won't have illness anymore. And so when we have a condition that's ongoing, for many people, it can feel like we're doing something wrong and um, that's that something's wrong with our faith for not getting better. And um, that's a that's a thing that went through my head often in my early years of pain, which started in my early 20s, um, just out of college. It wasn't any particular injury, but I started having um, ankle pain that spread to my knee and my hip and just through my entire body and never really got a satisfying diagnosis or um, treatment that was particularly helpful at the beginning. So um, a lot of questions came up for me with um, in my relationship with God about um, am, am I not, you know, speaking to God in the right way or um, is is this a normal part of the human experience? I went through a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, but I, what I think I would like your listeners to know most is that pain is not something that you have to overcome or like that you have to get better from in order to be close to Jesus and um, have a full Christian life. Um, and also the experiences that come with pain um, chronic pain, often um, anxiety, depression, just a, a kind of a feeling of spiritual darkness. That also is a, a normal part of the Christian life. And we often want to get over those experiences in order to get to the victorious part, like the happy part of um, being a Christian. But I think you can't have true joy without opening yourself up to lament and being honest about our human condition. Um, so I think that it's important for, for people who are going through those hard emotions to be able to bring them to their faith communities, to God, to the church, even if it means being angry without, um, without needing to cover over it and pretend like it's not there. We certainly have um, a good example in the person of the Apostle Paul uh, living with chronic pain, even as a person who lived with great joy um, in the midst of tremendous suffering um, and and elevated, I think, our theology of the body, helped us to understand um, not only how our own bodies are, uh, are vessels of, of the Holy Spirit, temples, um, but also how we are a part of, you know, of a larger body, uh, the body of Christ. I mean, the, the body theology in, in the New Testament is very powerful and very strong. Um, I think that often our body theology, um, because of the generation in which we live and because of all of the uh, technological and medical uh, advances available to us, we have some kind of uh, of mixed theology of the body that is not particularly mm. biblical. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the Apostle Paul and... Um, so there's one passage where he says, um, I think somewhere in Corinthians where he says, like, our outward bodies are wasting away, mm -hmm. but our inward, our souls, or I guess you could say, are being renewed day by day. And and that can often be interpreted as, like, well, you're not, your bodies aren't important. Um, 
so there's that side of it where, um, and in my book, I talk about Gnosticism, which is um, the separation of body and spirit that was a, a heresy in the early church and continues to come up in different ways in how we live our Christian lives today. And then on the other hand, um, there's a, there's another um, tendency, and you see this in a lot of prosperity gospel um, messages, like health and wealth messages in the church of, well, actually your body means everything. So like I said earlier, if you're if your body isn't well, then that's on you because there's an exact correspondence between your spiritual life and your physical life. So that if your physical life isn't going so well, that means something's wrong with your spiritual life. And so those are two like kind of opposite poles that I think we um, want to go to one end or the other because it's easier. It's simpler to like have that easy answer. Oh, okay. Like our bodies don't matter or Oh, actually, our bodies like matter. Like, like you can understand everything by just interpreting what's going on in our bodies. And um, I quote a theologian in my book that has been really helpful to me. Her name is Stephanie Paulsell, and she talks about how um, there's a tension between being a body and having a body, um, and then we are our bodies, but we are also more than our bodies, and it's it's hard to. Um, know how to live in that tension. It's something we're always trying to like go to one end or the other. But I think it's in the end, it's this tension that we have to live with and knowing that Jesus came to be a body and he still is a human body. Um, although his body is different in the resurrection and that's something we can cling to and hope to hope for when we're in the midst of our pain that, um, what we're going through now, it can be redeemed by God, transformed by God, made good by God um, in the resurrection. All right. I want to talk a little bit about resurrected bodies in just a moment. Luann Huska is my guest. If um, if you're dealing with chronic pain and you are interested in a, con- an, a, a more in-depth uh, conversation with Luann through her book, Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness, we do have copies to give away today. Uh, text the word book to 877 933 Eight, four. We'll be right back. We make a miracle walking, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. Continuing my conversation with Luann Huska, author of Hurting Yet Whole. You can uh, find it at University Press. If you are interested in entering the drawing for the copies we have to give away, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Luann, talk a little bit about uh, transformed, redeemed bodies, resurrected bodies. People are curious about that. They're going to be different, but somehow we'll still be recognizable. I do think that um, looking forward to a redeemed body is something that all of us as we age certainly do. But I suspect that people who live with chronic pain um, or illness or those who are born in bodies that are somehow regarded by the world as imperfect um, they have lots of thoughts and, and longings for a resurrected body. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so what we know about Jesus's resurrected body is very little. We know that he did things like eat and drink with his disciples, and he also walked through a wall, and then he was taken up into heaven. Um, 
but the fact that he ate and drank obviously um, means it was still a physical body. And we also know that he had scars from the resurrection that um, God saw fit to um, leave some evidence of the the suffering that he had gone through in his earthly life through the crucifixion. And um, one of the things that I would encourage people to uh, kind of consider as they think about their hopes for the resurrection is how our own ideas of what good and perfect bodies are has been shaped by our, the society around us, the values that um, society has placed on our bodies that might not come from the Bible, that might be um, something that we kind of read into the way that we think our resurrected bodies might be. Um, for example, um, we get a lot of our images of perfection or beauty from Hollywood or, you know, um, as you mentioned in the in you're introducing me, that um, medicine has made so many um, and amazing innovations in the past decades and um, past century. And it's almost as if um, we don't understand or we don't have any concept that our bo human bodies are limited anymore because we've um, surpassed so many limits and we have antibiotics and vaccines. And then, you know, we're in a pandemic where we're again um, amazed by the, the way that medicine and technology has come to meet the moment. And we have a vaccine now, um, many vaccines for the um, coronavirus and that those sorts of um, innovations can um, kind of give us a sense that as humans, we can kind of, um, we can control and master everything about our bodies. Or if we just have the right knowledge, we can, um, I mean, kind of get, get past all the things that limit us. Um, but the fact that Jesus still has a human body and one of the things that um, is the most kind of defining about having a human body is that it's, it can only be in one place at one time, right? Like Jesus, he was, even in his resurrected body, he was only in one place at one time. And then when he rose to heaven, he wasn't there with his disciples anymore. So we know that in some sense, um, being a human body and even in the resurrection, it, we still have some kind of limits. Um, and I think that we always try and like in our bodies now to overcome our limits. And that's what can be so frustrating about living in pain is that we have all these things we can't do. And in our society, so much of our value is based on what we do and like our work and our, what our like production ability. And, um, and I, I had to learn in my times of like despair and just feeling like, what am I even worth? Like, what is my life? for, um, if I can't do all these things I used to be able to do that, um, limits are part of being human, but what makes me valuable as a human being is that I am created in the image of God and I am beloved. And even if everything else is stripped away from me, all my abilities, I am still, um, valuable and loved because I am God's. Um, I think that Luann, for those of us who at this stage of life do not live with chronic pain um, and recognizing that that reality may be different an hour or a day, a week, a month or a year from now, um, talk with us, counsel us as brothers and sisters in Christ, how to best 
live alongside, pray for, offer support to our brothers and sisters who do live with chronic pain? Yeah, um, I'm so glad you mentioned, like you said, the reality is going to be different. It could be different. And um, I think it's it's so helpful to remember that we're not immune to suffering. That's that's not something we have immunity to by following Jesus. Um, and that the the people that we know in our lives that are going through pain, um, illness, um, something that's unresolved, that, um, yeah, that's that they're, they might be just fully well seeking Christ. I think, you know, we have the example from Job where his, um, his friends came and sat with him. And at first it was really helpful. They were just being present with him and kind of helping him to, um, just have companionship in his times of pain. But then when they started to talk, um, that's when things kind of went downhill because, they started to try to assign meaning, um, like, oh, God is doing this. And I received so much of that in my own, um, you know, struggles is people um, saying like, well, God is doing this to refine your character or um, are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart? And all these ways that we try to like answer the why behind why we have pain. And that um, we know from um, the story of Job that what what God said in the end is, um, you know, just look at creation. Like, who are you to say like that? You know what I'm doing. Um, my my ways are so beyond your ways. Just look at all the different animals in their intricate amazingness that I created. And um, so when we approach a person in pain, um, we I think it's just human nature to want to try to fix, um, or like make things better. Um, and I think one of the most helpful things though, that we can do is, um, create a space where our, our, the people that we love can, can truly sit with what they're feeling and, um, listen, um, b- before we say anything to listen. Um, and that allows for, um, people to feel what they're feeling and to go through the grieving process, which is, which is part of the healing process. But if we, if we like try to get to the, the resolution before we give time for grief, then um, that kind of short circuits the work that God is doing. So listening is one of the biggest things that I would say, listening without judgment and without agenda for, for people in pain. Luann Huska, thank you um, so much for your willingness to enter into a conversation about your own pain, um, your observations about um, how God is at work in the midst of every human life, regardless of the way that by outward appearance um, we might we might be tempted to judge it. Um, I particularly uh, felt like the part of the book that you know we're just you just very clearly talk about letting go of those things that we were led to believe would be a part of the good life and mm. and embracing the life that um, that you have to live in Christ um, to his glory and honor uh, is just very, very powerful. So thank you for your testimony. Thank you for the book. The book is Hurting Yet Whole, Reconciling Body and Spirit in Chronic Pain and Illness. Luann Huska uh, can be found on all the socials. Um, and if you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the books we have here, text the word book to 877 877- Nine three three two four eight four. Luann, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Carmen. It was a joy to talk to you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. 
God is good, and we are his. If you want to linger on a thought today, linger on this thought. God is good, and we are his. I recognize we live a long way from Eden. You may be suffering with chronic pain. You may receive news today that breaks your heart. Um, Certainly, we are a people living in the context of a historical moment that requires ardent, concerted, travailing prayer in the midst of all of that. In the face of all of that, I declare to you the truth that God is good and we are his. Have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.